You can take your Bibles tonight and turn to uh, the 38th Psalm. You'll remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And so the Lord wants us to have rest in our souls. And um, on Sunday, we kind of laid some groundwork in that connection. And last night, we looked at a troubled soul in the person of Job, looked at a suffering soul and Suffering can certainly be the occasion of soul unrest, and yet I think Job probably stands as the prime example of how desperate that place can be, and also that there is deliverance from that place, and it's always good when things end on an encouraging note. I don't know if we're going to get to Jonah this week. I'm not inclined to think that's the case, but um, it's always interesting to me you ever notice the book of Jonah just kind of ends? It's like there's really no resolution, and uh, it leaves Jonah in a pretty bad place spiritually and certainly with a lack of soul rest, and um, so lots of things can affect that. Uh, tonight, we're going to be uh, taking our attention and directing it toward David, a man after God's own heart, but before we actually get to that, kind of <clears throat> set the stage for some of the things that we want to preach. I want to read the first eight verses of Psalm 38. <clears throat> the Bible says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over mine head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Let's pray. Our Father, again, tonight we're just grateful that we have the liberty and the opportunity to meet here with this church and to have an open Bible before us. We're thankful for the Spirit of God that indwells each one of us. And I just pray, Father, that you would take the word of God tonight and use it to minister to our hearts. You know the need of each one that's gathered here tonight. We know that your word is sufficient. I pray, Father, that you would just help me to be an effective communicator of your truth. And just pray, God, that we would all have an ear not just to hear the words of a man, but to hear your spirit speaking to our hearts, challenging us, encouraging us, whatever the need may be at this present hour. And Lord, we believe you want to do that. We believe that you will do that. And we give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> so I want to I wanna consider just a few thoughts here briefly by way of introduction from this text that will kind of help set the stage for a couple of other psalms that we're going to spend some time in this evening. I, I'm going to do that just by referencing some of the phrases that we've just read. The psalmist here in these first eight verses of the 38th Psalm mentions the fact that there's no soundness in my flesh, neither any rest in my bones. He says, mine iniquities are too heavy for me. He says, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken, the disqu- and he makes reference to the disquietness of my heart. That word disquietness, it's just a word that means uneasiness. It even involves the idea of restlessness, so an absence of rest 
in his heart. It even involves the idea of a, of a roaring that's taking place. And so here he's obviously describing himself at a state and at a place in life where he has no rest in his soul. But really one of the remarkable things about these phrases that I've just recounted to you is that there is clearly a spiritual, this clearly the spiritual and the physical are connected. So that means a couple of things. Number one, we can be having physical problems, health problems, if you will, and there's the potential for that to adversely affect us spiritually. And at the same time, you can kind of reverse that, and we're going to be having spiritual problems, and there's the potential for our spiritual problems to ad adversely affect us physically. It's important to remember that because, you know, we talked a little bit on Sunday about man being body, soul, and spirit, but it's not like those things are completely independent of one another. They're very closely connected, and they're influencing and impacting uh, each other as we go through life and as, again, we receive the stimuli from the spiritual and the physical world. There's a couple of other phrases in this passage I think that explain the cause of the spiritual and physical suffering that the psalmist writes about. In verse 3, he's describing all of this, and this is very important because he says, because of my sin. So he was experiencing all of this in his spiritual life and in his physical being. Verse 3, because of my sin. In verse 5, he says it this way, because of my foolishness. So let me just say at the outset this evening that sin is a self-destructive force in our life. There's, reason, there's a reason, I think, why Solomon declared in his Proverbs, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So the Bible clearly declares that if we cover our sin... The consequence of that is that we will not prosper. The idea of prospering there is to grow or to increase. It involves the idea of to thrive or to make gain. I really like the idea of thriving because probably all of us in our spiritual life, we want to be thriving. I think if we're truly saved, we want to be thriving. And there's a lot of things that can hinder us in that regard. But one of the primary things... And, and one of the things that would not surprise us at all is that sin can hinder that. Unconfessed sin. Now, the Bible said here in Proverbs, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper. It doesn't mean that our sin doesn't need to be covered. It does need to be covered. But I shouldn't be covering it. It needs to be covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're in a position where we can actually thrive, and, and prosper. So this evening we're going to look at David, a guilty soul. And you know, it could be that David is such a significant case study concerning a guilty soul because, and it says this more than one place in the Bible, Old and New Testament, he was a man after God's own heart. When you really stop and reflect upon that and ponder that, and God himself said that, that David is a man after mine own heart. That's a pretty significant thing for God to testify to. We might look at others and say, well, that's a man, that's a woman that's after God's own heart. And, and it may well be true. But for God to declare, this is a man that's after my own heart, it certainly makes him a very striking character study in respect to this idea of a guilty soul. I think it's likely... <clears throat> that his heart for God accentuated his guilt to such a degree and that he expressed it in such powerful terms that it's hard to deny the adverse effects of a guilty soul. You know, you think about guilt just in general, and uh, I'm, I'm going to characterize it this way, and then I'm going to explain what I mean. And that is the fact that guilty is a, a guilt is a powerfully negative force in a person's life. And I'm using the word negative in the sense that it produces an adverse context for living. Have any of you ever had guilt in your life? It's not very pleasant, is it? This kind of makes for a miserable even few minutes, potentially, but maybe few hours, maybe few days, maybe even, maybe even months, maybe, maybe even years. But it certainly makes a miserable context for living. 
However, guilt, uh, however, guilt is not the original cause. Guilt, too, has a cause. Something creates, something causes guilt in our life. Would anybody venture to guess what that might be? Maybe starts with an S. Got a middle letter I. Sin, there you go. Listen, particularly as God's people with the Holy Ghost living in us, we cannot transgress God's precepts and transgress his will for our life when we know what his will is and not have guilt about that. I mean, guilt just in the general context, but even especially so because we have the Holy Spirit of God living in our lives, and so there's, there's Holy Spirit conviction because believers have a level of guilt that unbelievers really don't know much about. And it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And because guilt has such negative consequences, a good part of the psychological world says that guilt is bad. Well, it's bad because it makes you feel bad. That's their perspective of it. That's their view of it. It makes you feel bad, even potentially creating emotional problems. So the guilt is bad. But that's what happens when you have a man-centric understanding and perspective. That is the end of all. But the reality is guilt is there for a reason. Something has caused and created that guilt. They look at the bad feelings produced by guilt and conclude that it's bad for your emotional health. In fact, I had come across uh, some things that had been written in psychology today. And uh, it, it was dealing with the issue of guilt and shame. So I'm just going to give you a taste of this. The negative emotion of guilt can be paralyzing for some people. A person can feel guilty for something he did, for something he didn't do, for something he thought he did, or for not doing enough for another person. Certainly if a person causes harm to another, then, then guilt and remorse are natural. This feeling can catalyze a person to apologize, correct the wrong, and do better in the future. These are appropriate reactions. He goes on and writes, children start feeling the emotion of guilt at around three to five. Some children suffer greatly from guilt and are unable to express themselves carrying this feeling well into adulthood. People who suffer to this degree take on this emotion even when it isn't warranted. I wonder about that. They write, a person who feels badly about, for example, wishing evil thoughts on another might take their guilt to an extreme. So in other words, I'm thinking ill thoughts toward another, and I might take my guilt to an extreme when I realize what I'm doing. That doesn't quite resonate with me. Especially when we have verses like this in the Bible, Proverbs 24, 17. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. So if I'm not to be glad or rejoice when my enemy stumbles, how can I possibly justify having ill thoughts toward my neighbor or just someone in general? The reality is, is that if I have ill thoughts toward someone, I ought to feel guilty. Because it's not right. It's not pleasing to God. It's contrary to the principles of the word of God. He goes on and writes, They may suffer excessive rumination or depressive thoughts, which is a surefire recipe for mood disorders. Okay. Well, let's just take that at face value for a second. And let's ask another question. What is the most surefire way of, of escaping excessive rumination or depressive thoughts which is certain to produce mood disorders that, that are the result of wishing evil thoughts on another? What's the surest way to deal with that? Quit it. Quit doing that. It's amazing how when you're doing something that makes you feel guilty, when you quit doing that, you don't feel guilty anymore. But most of what the world wants to do today is they don't want you to change your behavior because of the guilt. They just want to alleviate the guilt feelings that you're having. And that really is a very, very dangerous thing. 
they write about guilt versus shame. <laughs> and, you know, just on the face of this, when I think about the idea of shame, there really is no shame in our culture today. People aren't ashamed of anything. But they write, shame is guilt's closest handmaiden. They are two closely related emotions, though guilt concerns others, and shame is more internal. A person may not have done anything particular, but shame bubbles up within. And so I read that and I ask myself, can you have shame about nothing in particular? Have any of you ever felt shame? Well, when you did, if you can manage to think back to one of those times, was it not about something particular? It's not like you're going through life and nothing particular is going on, and all of a sudden I'm just overcome with shame. That's not how it happens in life. You know, really what that is is psychobabble. That's just, that's just talking about something that really, at the root of it, when you just ask a few simple questions, it doesn't make any sense at all. This is perhaps, they write, a function of the person's inner dialogue, one that displaces other thoughts and feelings. Some individuals are overly self-conscious and prone to blame themselves and feel shame. I don't think we live in a culture today that's overly self-conscious. I don't see much of that. They give as a good example is the person, excuse me, is the obese person who may feel enormous shame over his weight, feeding a cycle of self-blame, shame, and poor self-regard. So let me, let me say something about that real quick. So if a person is having weight problems because of an organic medical condition, something's wrong with their body and it's not working right, and one of the symptoms of that is weight gain, that's one thing. Everybody with me on that? If the reason I'm gaining weight is because I can't keep my fork away from my mouth, that's an entirely different thing. And it may be that I should have a little shame about that. Maybe you might even say not even shame about being overweight or obese or whatever the case might be, but just having shame about a lack of, the Bible word is, temperance. Somebody can say amen. It's all right. There are some things we ought to be ashamed of. The problem is we can engage in sin so often that we lose some of the edge of that. And in fact, we can even make light of it and laugh about it, kind of take the edge off of it. But I'm not sure that's ever true of God, whatever, whatever the sin may be. You see, as far as the world is concerned, <clears throat> to look at guilt, shame is a bad thing. <clears throat> well, actually, the world doesn't say that. This is in my notes. To look at guilt and shame as a bad thing would be like a medical doctor looking at pain and saying pain is a bad thing. Pain is a bad thing in the sense that it creates discomfort. Have any of you ever had pain? Who wants to go home and have pain tonight? You know, nobody wants to have pain. But actually, pain is saying something's wrong. Something needs to be fixed. Something's not right here. And because it's not right, it's creating this sensation of pain. Do you realize how much trouble we would be in if we didn't have pain? Most of us would probably already be dead. That's why, you know, kids, you try to teach them not to touch stuff hot, and that's all well and fine. But the one thing that will really teach them not to touch something hot is to touch it right. Because I'm not suggesting you let them do that. But one thing is for sure, if they do that, the sensation that they have registers unlike anything else, and they probably won't even touch that thing now when it's cold. So pain does have its place. Because pain is caused by something else. And so pain is, is a physical warning system that alerts us to a physical problem. Equally so, 
Guilt is a spiritual warning system that alerts us to a spiritual problem. So guilt is really a good thing. In the physical world, you can take steps to remove the pain while leaving the cause unattended. Right? You can do that. You can take drugs, and there might be times where that's appropriate and needed. But it's really not taking care of the problem. The problem is still there. Likewise, in the spiritual world, you can take steps to remove the guilt while leaving the cause unattended. The end result in both cases is that you feel better, even though you're not better. Did you catch that? So you feel guilty about something, you find some means or some way or some justification for whatever sin or transgression you're committing, you find a way to alleviate that guilt, and all of a sudden you feel better, but you're really not any better. You've just taken away the warning system by some means that ultimately in the long term is going to leave you very destitute and in a much more painful situation. So I think it's important to recognize that guilt is to the spiritual world what pain is to the physical world. So we're going to spend some time in a couple of psalms. We're going to be kind of flipping back and forth between these two. We're going to start in Psalm 32 and begin by thinking about David and some of the things that he said in respect to a grievous set of choices that he made, a grievous set of sins that he committed against a woman and her husband, and uh, when the Lord arrested his attention about that in a very real way through the prophet Nathan, how he responded to that. <clears throat> so the first thing I would have us to note is the burden of a guilty soul. In Psalm 32, verses 1 through 4, I see a notable contrast. And in verses 1 and 2, we find a blessed soul. In verse 1 it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. So just for simplification purposes, we could say the word blessed carries the idea of just being happy, having a, having a happy disposition. And um, what is it that makes for a soul being blessed? Well, he mentioned several things here. Have our transgression forgiven. You remember when your transgressions were forgiven when you got saved? Remember when the burden was lifted? Remember the happiness, the lightness that came into your life, the joy that came into your life because your transgressions were forgiven? Remember when your sin was covered? You may not have understood all of that theologically and doctrinally when you got saved. I certainly didn't. But I sure knew what it felt like when it happened. And I felt a lot better. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that on that occasion as a little boy that my sins got covered, but I knew something happened to them, and I felt a lot better about it. When iniquity is not imputed, the idea is it not be, it's not being held against you. It's not being left in your account. Listen, we rack up a big bill when it comes to iniquity. It's a remarkable, amazing uh, response of the grace of God to not impute that to our account. And when we realize through the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ that it's not being held against us, that's a happy day. Oh, happy day. Amen. That's a happy day. A guileless spirit. The word guile is the idea of craft or artifice, duplicity, deceit. So we're talking about a spirit that doesn't have any of that. It's a terrible thing to have to feel like you're covering up something. It's a, it's a hard way to live. There's never any real comfort in that. There's never really any soul rest in that. But a guileless spirit, when you know you're not hiding anything, when you know you're not covering up anything, that's a, that can be a happy man right there or a happy woman. So... There's a blessed soul in verses 3 and 4 in contrast to that. Look at a guilty soul. Look what he says in verse 3. When I kept silence, see that? When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all 
the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. What about this guilty soul? David, in just a few short phrases here, kind of sums it up, and I think most of us can relate to this. He identifies it as being the occasion of when I kept silence. When you think back to his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, remember he did everything he could to cover that up. That was the, that was the whole purpose of sending Uriah into the heat of the battle and then withdrawing from him so that he could be killed by the enemy. David had the enemy do his dirty work, and Joab too. Which There's a lot to be said about Joab, but I'll just leave it at that. He had, he had Joab do his dirty work as well. Be careful who you keep around you. You know, I, I just got to have to say this. Be careful about having people in your life that will help you sin. Be careful about having people in your life that will cover up your sin. Because I got news for you right now. Those people are not your friends. They're not your friends. Your friends will call you out. Your friends will challenge you. Your friends will say, what's going on here? What are you thinking? What are you doing? You know this isn't right. Joab wasn't that kind of man. On one occasion, I think we can identify where he was when David wanted to number the people, but that was really out of character for him. He, usually, he was usually always ready to do something a little on the shady side. But that was a period of time when David was keeping silence. If I, best I can figure, it was about a year between those events unfolding and Nathan the prophet coming to him and saying, Thou art the man. So there was about a year there where David was keeping silence about his... I mean, he, after Uriah was killed, he brought Bathsheba to him because he found out that she was expecting, right? You remember that? He said, we'll just get married and nobody will know the difference. There was a God in heaven that knew the difference. There was a God in heaven that was watching. And while he may have had some success, had it been allowed to play out, to hide it from all the nation of Israel and his counselors, he was never going to hide it from God. And God saw to it that it wasn't going to be hidden from anybody. When I kept silence. Well, what happened when he kept silence? What was he experiencing during this year where there was a lack of confession and repentance? He says, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. This idea of waxing old, it's the idea of to fail by implication, to wear out, to decay. And he says it's through my roaring. The idea there is, is just to moan internally on the inside. In the heart of this man who had a heart that was after God's own heart. He was moaning with guilt. And in spite of all that he did to cover it up, his heart was being eaten out with it. And it aged him. It aged him. You read the narrative of David and he was never the same after that. Yes, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. All the day long is a phrase that implies from one sunset to the next. And if I calculate that right, that means there was never a time when his bones was not waxing old. <clears throat> in fact, he says in the next phrase, for day and night, Thy hand was heavy upon me. You know, the, the amazing thing about it is, is he's, he's, talk, he's talking about God here. So in essence, he's saying, God, your hand was heavy upon me. In other words, all that he had done to cover it up, God's hand was still upon him, pressing down upon him and reminding him every day and every night that he had transgressed the laws of God. Undoubtedly, David was distracted during the day and restless at night. A hand was heavy upon me, a heavy hand. Guilt is a burden. It is a burden. It is the spiritual equivalent of carrying around extra weight all day long and all night long. At bare minimum, because it creates spiritual anxiety. It's, it's having something in our lives that's contrary to who we're supposed to be. 
and there's, there's a tension there. And not only a tension, but contention there. And it creates spiritual anxiety. Another reason it's a great burden is because there's always the fear of discovery. You're always having to look over your shoulder. I read one time an account, and uh, I, don't, I don't remember who the man was, but he was, a, he was a well-to-do man that lived in England, and somebody just wrote him a note that said, you've been discovered, left it unsigned, and sent it to him. He was on a boat leaving the country the next day. What does that mean? That means he had engaged in something that he was trying to keep covered up, and he thought someone knew about it. So we're always, we're always looking over. You know, the Bible says the righteous are as bold as a lion. Amen? There's this fear of discovery. There's disappointment with self. I know we live in an age where, you know, our main problem is we don't love ourselves enough. We need to have better self-esteem. Listen, it's hard for me to look around in the world and say, well, people don't love themselves enough. Because nearly every decision they make is in consideration of what's going to make their life happier and better as they perceive that. They're entirely living for self. You know, when we're harboring sin, we should be disappointed with self. And then, of course, there's the lack of fellowship with God. You know, if we're saved, we're going to want to have fellowship with God. And when there's things in our life that's hindering that, it's going it's to rob us of our soul rest. We're not going to be able to have joy like we want to. He says here, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. <laughs> this word moisture is the idea of a, it's a word that's used figuratively for vigor or freshness. So just energy and vitality and life. That's the word moisture here. And David said that that moisture was turned into the drought of summer. The word drought there is a parching heat. So he's just dried up. He was shriveling up under the burden of his sin. And listen, folks, that's what happens to us. That's what happens to us when we carry around sin and we're unwilling to confess it and we're unwilling to repent of it. We're going to have a troubled soul. We're not going to have rest in our soul. There's a lack of motivation. There's a melancholy spirit. There's a lifeless, spiritless attitude towards living. And then you'll notice at the end of that verse 4, there's that little word again that occurs ever so often in Psalms, Selah. It's like up to music. Let's play a little music and think about this for a minute. Let's ponder this. Let's reflect upon what I've just said. The testimony from David's perspective, the personal testimony that I've just given. Look in Psalm 51. We see a state of despair. So not only do we see a notable contrast in Psalm 31, we see a state of despair in Psalm, 50, in Psalm 51. Look, if you will, in verse 3. <clears throat> David said, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You know, I read that verse, and in my notes I just have this, the omnipresence of sin. Because the reality is, is when we have unconfessed sin, we're going to see that sin around every corner. When our eyes pop open in the morning, we're going to see that sin that we're covering up. Before our eyes close at night, the last thing we're going to see is that sin we're covering up in our hearts. David said, my sin is ever before. You know, we've pro we can probably all identify with this. This is the burden of guilt. And you know, I, I don't, there's no way to know for sure, but you have to wonder if there was ever a day that went by for that entire year after David had Uriah killed in battle that he didn't think about his treachery. The fact that he had taken Uriah's wife in adultery and the subsequent cover-up with the murder of Uriah, a faithful servant. In fact, over in 1 Chronicles, when it's listing David's mighty men, these were men that were mighty in his, this was his closest circle of men. These were men who had done great exploits on the behalf
house of David. And you know which one of them was? Uriah the Hittite. But you know he had done something with Uriah's wife and he had to get rid of him. One who would have given his life for him. One who wouldn't even go down to his own house because the men were in the field of battle. A faithful man. But to cover his sin, he had him killed. And you know, when God addresses him about that, he doesn't say Joab killed him. He doesn't say the enemy killed him. He says, David, you killed him. And David did kill him. It's a pretty remarkable thing. How many nights may he have woke up in a cold sweat having dreamed about Uriah? In verse 8, look there with me. The Bible says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. <clears throat> so there's a degraded emotional and, let's see, that doesn't look right. Let me, that was 6. That's why it didn't look right. Verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Yeah, that looks a lot better. In verse 8, I see a degraded emotional and physical state. What does he say here? He says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Okay, if David is saying, make me to hear joy and gladness, what does that mean? That means, he, yeah, there's not a, he's not hearing that. It also tells me that he had heard it once. And he enjoyed that. That was something that brought him pleasure and happiness. But now, because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, he did no longer hear the joy and the gladness. Because, you know, folks, nothing will strip us of joy and gladness like sin and the guilt that comes with it. This word joyful is the idea of cheerfulness. It's a a glorious and triumphant state. And when I was going over my notes today, I thought about, I, I just thought about that, that idea of a glorious and triumphant state. And I, I just kind of thought about it in the context of sports. There's probably lots of places where you could think about it. But, you know, somebody wins a championship in any sport, and, you know, obviously the players on the winning team, they're excited, they're exuberant. I mean, they're jumping up and down and hugging each other and holding the trophy in the air, and the fans are going crazy like they actually had something to do with it. They're going crazy. Well, my team won, my team won. That's, that's joy. And David didn't have that. Gladness is the idea of being merry-hearted, pleasure, joyful satisfaction. You know, we've got sin in our heart. We can't have joyful satisfaction. He goes on in verse 8 and says that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. You know, it's really hard to escape the fact that David felt the guilt of his sin in his physical being. It was adversely affecting him physically. Look in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So I see an inward turmoil. He cries out to God and says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. The idea there is a pure heart. Guilt is the indicator. Listen to me tonight. Guilt is the indicator that impurities have entered the soul. That's what it's an indication of. It's the spiritual part of a man attempting to rid the soul of those impurities. We've committed sin against God, and the guilt is saying it's something's not right here. Let's get this out. The message of guilt is basically this when you think about it. I am not clean. I am not clean. He says, renew a right spirit within me. The word right is the idea of to be erect, to establish, to fix. So guilt is the indicator that things are not right in my spirit. It's the spiritual part of man attempting to right the wrongs. The things that have gone wrong in my life, guilt is an attempt by God to get my attention. Holy Spirit conviction is an attempt by God to get my conviction to right the wrongs. To make things right again. The message of guilt is, I am, I am not right. I am not, things are wrong in my life. Notice in verse 12. It says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Well, this is, this is what we well know is 
a symptom of having unconfessed sin. It's the absence of joy. When really, as God's people, we ought to have more joy than anyone else. But when we have unconfessed sin in our life, there's going to be an absence of that. That's why David says here, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I'm sure you all know this. I know you do. But he doesn't say restore unto me my salvation. He never lost that. If you've got it, you'll never lose it. But you can sure lose the joy of it. And you know, if you just think about it, you know, people struggle with their salvation for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons is because if you're harboring sin in your life, you lose one of the great benefits of salvation. And that's the joy of it. Then when you've lost the joy of your salvation, the devil can begin to play with your mind. He can begin to attack you spiritually. Begin to tell you, well, maybe you're not even saved. Maybe you never really got saved. When really the whole problem is, I've got an unconfessed sin in my life. And I've lost the joy of my salvation. That's why David says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. If guilt does anything, if it does anything, it disrupts the joy of his salvation in our life. You know, Peter talked about joy unspeakable and full of glory. Don't you like to have that? Amen? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. And you know how we get joy unspeakable? It's because we've received the unspeakable gift in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, chapter 9. So the unspeakable gift creates unspeakable joy in our life. And the reality is, is that when we willingly and knowingly sin and we're unwilling to address it and we're unwilling to repent and confess of it, we're going to lose the joy of our salvation. What's the answer for a guilty soul? There's got to be some answer for this. There's got to be some way out because we all mess up. We all sin. And you know, the most spiritual among us at times in our life where we've held on to it a little bit too long. We knew it needed to be dealt with, and we just was dragging our feet for whatever reason. It can be a host of reasons why, but we drag our feet. We're just not wanting to deal with it. So what's the answer for it? Psalm 32, look back there. <clears throat> well, according to Psalm 32, 5, I think the answer for it is Repentance. The Bible says in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. He goes on and, and says, I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. So there's three things that David says in this one verse. He says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. He took ownership of it. Said, I acknowledge it. He says, mine iniquity have I not hid. Now, he did try to hide it. And he probably thought he had for a while, even though his heart was in absolute turmoil. But you know, when Nathan came to him and gave him that little story, boy, isn't that compelling? What, what is it? It's just compelling. And one of the most compelling things about that is David, having heard this short little story, how Boy, you can just see Nathan pointing his finger at him and saying, Thou art the man. And David didn't have to say, What are you talking about? What do you mean I'm the man? He knew exactly what he was talking about. And all of a sudden he realized, I condemned myself. And it was that little story, really so simple, that caused David to come face to face with his sin. And it, he wasn't hiding it after that. In fact, shortly thereafter, if not the very next thing, he says, I have sinned. Boy, just the brokenness of that. Just realizing what he had done out of the narrative of that little story and realizing that he had done that to a man with his own wife. And when he saw it for what it was, and he saw it like God saw it, his heart was broken over it. Finally, all of the floodgates were unleashed, and he despised himself for it. Sometimes we ought to despise ourselves. 
And he did. You'll notice in that verse right there, he says, my sin, mine iniquity, my transgressions. Guilt is attempting to get us to own our sin. To not look around and say, but they. You know, there have been any number of times over the years where I've had to deal with people about a wide range of things. And I always know things are not right in their heart when you begin to deal with their issue. And the first thing they can say is, well, so and so. They're not wanting to own where they're at. They're not wanting to own what they've done. They're wanting to, they're wanting to focus the attention somewhere else as though that gives them justification for what they've done. Listen, this is as old as creation itself. Because when God came to Adam in the, in, in the, in the Garden of Eden and said, what have you done? Why have you eaten of the fruit? What did they, the woman thou gavest me. basically blamed Eve and in a roundabout way even blamed God himself and people are apt to do really we're all apt to do that we 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 want to we want to shit when it when, man when the when the when the floodlight is shining on us we want to tell the light guy hey hey move that over there Get, take that light off of me right listen come on let's fight that's what we want but as long as we're wanting that, we can never get it right. We've got to own it. We've just got to own it. It's amazing. And you can look through your Bible for this phrase, and there's very, very few times where you will find these words, I have sinned. Because they're the hardest three words for people to utter. Well, I made a mistake. Yeah, I failed. Yeah, I messed up. Well, I made a bad choice. All of those things are probably true, but it's more serious than that. I have sinned. Because, you see, all of these other phrases just kind of keep it in the realm of human connection and human involvement. But when you say, I have sinned, you're bringing God into the equation then. And it's God who's been offended. And it's God whose law has been transgressed. Those are very hard words to say. In fact, probably most of us, including myself, have actually said those words probably very few times. They are hard to utter. I have sinned. Look in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 Verse 4, owning the act of sin. He says in verse 4, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. So yes, here very plainly, very clearly, he is owning the act of his sin. He does so by saying against thee, that is God, and thee only have I sinned. He says, I've done this evil in thy sight. And then notice what he says, because this is significant, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now, it's not like David need to say, needed to say that so that God would be justified when he spoke. God is always going to speak the right thing. What David is saying is when you speak against me, you're absolutely legitimate in doing so. Whatever judgment you see fit to pass against me, you are just in doing so. It is agreeing with God in every detail that he is right about my sin. And David's admitting that. It's just a matter of the guilty sinner confessing that God is right. He's agreeing with God about his sin. He's done with excuse making. He's done with the hypocrisy. He's done with the justifying. He's done with the casting blame. Listen, again, I've, I've dealt with people and, you know, you're, you're talking to them, trying to get them to a place of, of, 
repentance and restoration and you're talking to them, you're asking them some questions, you're trying to figure out where they're at. And it's amazing to me, sometimes people just want to know, well, what do I have to do? And, and I learned a long time ago, I never answer that question. Because what they're looking for is just one thing they can do and be able to come back and say, well, I did that. So now everything's okay. When likely it's not okay. And you know, another thing I've noticed about this is when somebody's truly repentant, you don't have to tell them that, do you? When they're truly repentant, you don't have to tell them what to do. All you got to do is look over there. What is it? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It, it tells us exactly what repentance looks like. The issue is we see it so rarely in our day that we want to fudge on it. And we want to say, well, yeah, it seems like they're repentant. Well, they're probably repentant. When the Bible lays out very clearly what repentance looks like, what clearing of yourself, amen, what vengeance, right? There, there's, some, there's some definitive things that happen in the heart of a person that repents of their sin that makes it unmistakable. And have any of you ever seen anybody truly repent? What about when you repented? Did anybody have to tell you what to do? No, you, you pretty much knew what to do. You knew what it required. You knew what this meant. David did. It's his sin, and he intends to own it. And listen, I'm telling you right now, that kind of an attitude, it works wonders with removing guilt. As painful as it may be to own it, once we do that, take responsibility for it. And whatever shame may accompany that, whatever difficulty may accompany that, whatever heartache and consequences may come of that, there's still a lightness that comes into our heart and soul knowing I've made things right primarily with God. That's really the crux of the matter. What about the sincerity of a guilty soul? Look there again in Psalm 51 verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Then look down in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And look down in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There are some words in those verses I read that indicate the desire of David's heart. Those words are wash, cleanse, purge, wash, clean. So let me say something to you tonight. When David got serious about his sin, David was focused more on cleansing than he was forgiveness. I think we for way too long have communicated to people in such a way that we've created a culture of Christian people and even Baptist people that are always seeking forgiveness but never seeking cleansing. And you really can't have one without the other. You know, if people desire cleansing, the forgiveness will take care of it. In fact, 1 John 1, 9, what did it say? What did he say there? If you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Most people just want to quit right there. Hallelujah, I'm forgiven. But he's faithful and just to do something else and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when I read that, I think, okay, so if I'm not cleansed from all unrighteousness and he's faithful and just to do that and I'm not, then maybe I'm not forgiven either. And maybe that's because I haven't truly confessed my sin. I haven't truly got to the point where I saw my sin as being against God and owned it like David did. It's worth thinking about. I'm just telling you, when we have a right view of sin, what we're really going to want is to be clean from it. That's going to be our heart desire. And forgiveness just comes along with it. In fact, how many times have probably most of us pled for forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. I'm, I've done this. Please forgive me. And I'm not saying he doesn't because you can actually be kind of seeking cleansing in that context. 
But I'm not so sure that it wouldn't do us a lot better when we have sin in our lives to pray for cleansing and for purging and to be made pure. Lastly, the renewal of the guilty soul. Look in Psalm 51 and verse 1. This is a great verse. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Amen. There is restoration to be had. It really doesn't matter what you've done. Even if you've committed adultery and murder. Hello. Adultery and murder. You can still say, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving. You know, the Lord's going to have more loving kindness towards you than anybody else will. More than your parents, more than your siblings, more than your church, more than your friends more than your children. The Lord knows what loving kindness is all about. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Something sweet about tender mercies, amen? God knows how to be tender when we need it. And when people are broken over their sin and they're owning it and they're saying, I've sinned, boy, that touches the heart of God. It moves him to tenderness. Blot out my transgressions. That may be the only phrase in this chapter that is probably alluding to wanting his sins forgiven. Have them blotted out. But the focus is on cleansing. Look in Psalm 32. We'll wrap up here. <clears throat> we read this a little bit earlier, but let's look at it again here. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose, and in whose spirit there is no guile. <clears throat> Blessed is the man whose transgression is covered. Again, Proverbs 28, 13, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. We can't cover our own sin, but there's a God who wants to, if we'll own it. We'll say, I have sinned. The man whose sin is forgiven, the man unto whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no God. Folks, you know, it really kind of comes down to this tonight. Listen, I don't, I don't know really any of your hearts. There well could be somebody here who's been trafficking in sin. Maybe it's just been in your thought life. That's serious business right there. You know, if you're having to sneak around and do something, that might be your first indication you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Whether it's on the internet, anything else. Is there some sin that's been raging in your soul and against your peace? We need to ask ourselves that. Let me just tell you that guilt is your friend. You say, I feel guilty. That's your friend trying to tell you something. Trying to warn you about something. Trying to tell you, man, something ain't right here. You're not, you're not clean. You need to be cleaned up. Embrace the warning. Own your sin. And renewal and reconciliation is available. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. David said this. For, and this, when you, when you think about this, this is remarkable under the old covenant. Because, again, all you have to do is go to Leviticus and find out very clearly God ordered a system of sacrifice. But yet in spite of that, David says in Psalm 51, 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You know, David had keen insight. He realized that it really wasn't about sacrifices and burnt offerings. That really, it really wasn't about all of that. That was just a way to express what should have been on the inside. And rather than a sacrifice and a burnt offering, David says what he really wants is a broken and a contrite heart. And God honors that. And God responds to that. Guilt is meant to break us are more to the point meant to break off our sin. 
Guilt is intended to make sin so painful that it ceases to be worth holding on to. Unfortunately, sin can be so defiantly persisted in that the conscience can, to a degree, become seared and one's sensitivity can certainly be reduced. I think if you're saved, it's never going to go away because it's the Holy Spirit, right? That's never going to go completely away. Pain of guilt subsides, but the sin that produced it is still ravaging the soul. So, hey, man, if you lack peace and soul rest because of a guilty soul, you know the wonderful thing about that? is before you step a foot in the aisle to go home tonight, you can have rest. If you don't have it, I hope you do before you hit the back door. Let's worship now.